Thank you, as always, Ms. Davis, for that introduction. We really appreciate it. This is Take Fountain. You know, we've done a few shows already. Um, and we, by the way, we appreciate the response. It's been huge and kind of overwhelming, honestly, and we're happy that you're happy and happy that you're watching and listening. But I thought that we should do uh, sort of the origin of our relationship, which is that uh, Tom and I, uh, Tom Mount is, is uh, with me as always, uh, we started talking um, about a year ago. And the story that made me think we got to do this, we got to do something along this line, is the story of Smokey and the Bandit, which you oversaw as president of Universal Pictures in right. 1977. Am I yes, right? That's okay. Right. Okay. Let me set the stage, and I then think I'll. We st- shot it actually in '76 and released it in '77. Okay, great. Now here's this year, 1977, two days before the release of Smokey and the Bandit, Star Wars opens. It is the movie of the year, if not the decade. By the end of that year, um, you have um, uh, Saturday Night Fever. So it's the disco era. Nobody cares a rip about rural America. And it is bright lights, big city, sophistication, aliens, and so on. In the middle of all this, we this nuclear explosion happens with this little movie. What is it? Eight, nine million dollar movie, something like that? Nine million. Nine million dollar movie called Smokey and the Bandit, which completely turns the industry upside down because nobody expects this to be a hit. Can I, 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 with that set set up right there, can I ask you where this idea came from exactly? So there's a man named Mort Engelberg who yeah. produced Smokey and the Bandit. Mort Engelberg works for a man named Ray Stark. Ray Stark is, at yeah. that moment, 76, right. is so um, heavily invested in making pictures at Columbia Pictures that he might as well have been the chairman of the company. Right. No one would do anything without checking with Ray. Right. Ray had huge hits. Funny Girl, Funny Lady, all sorts of stuff. Giant hit movies. Annie, all this stuff. Sure. So... Ray has this fellow, Engelberg. Engelberg's from Memphis. He had been uh, an employee in the public relations department and uh, marketing department of United Artists. He had decided he needed to become some kind of producer, and he got a job working at a low level for Ray Stark. They had developed a treatment called CB to Atlanta, the treatment was written by Hal Needham, a stuntman who'd never written anything. Yeah, Hal Needham, who ended up directing this picture. That's exactly right. Which is odd in and of itself, but go on. So Columbia developed CB to Atlanta, and Mort came and to me and at Universal and said, look, we've got this thing. And I said, what is the thing? And he said, well, you know how Coors Beer, like, because of the, I don't know, some food regulation can't be brought east of the Mississippi, well, this is a movie about that. And it's got, you know, semis and trailer trucks and country and western music, and it's got a guy driving a hot car, and he's wearing a cowboy hat, and it's all that. And I said, Are you, you're talking about a movie I wanted to see as a teenage boy in a drive-in in Roxboro, North Carolina. And yeah. he said, yeah, that's exactly what we want to do. I thought that was a great idea. Sure. We were making a wide variety of pictures. Universal was making 25 pictures a year, which in those days was an enormous volume. Yeah. Started a picture every two weeks, you know, released a picture every two weeks. So. 
And you've in your career has been was you you found these underserved markets, which we've talked about in some previous things about right. that the Universal didn't make nobody made movies for black people other than you know small independent companies. Right. You started that in many ways, and and so there's here's this other underserved market. Uh, you know the, the 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 as the NASCAR market, as you want to, or for well, lack of a better NASCAR word, NASCAR and and the flyover market, the flyover really. market, right? And so um, I bought that. I called the guy who was running Columbia, who was a former agent, a guy I knew well, and I said, "Look, I want to buy. You have this treatment. It's called CB2 Atlanta." He said, "What are you talking about? I don't even know." He said, "It's there somewhere. You own it. I need to buy it from you." I bought it from him for eight thousand bucks. We then took that treatment. It was, I'm going to say, no offense, Hal, it was just terrible. Terrible. I, it was yeah. just like, but Hal admittedly dropped out of school in the fourth grade, grew up in a farm in Missouri, had been a stuntman all his life, had wanted to direct something, but had never had that chance. So we went to work on it, and we had a very, very well-oiled script writing and development process. Was there pushback from anybody on this? Did, did, oh, yeah. did everybody want to make Smokey and the Bandit? Or? Tons of pushback. Yeah. Once we had a script that we thought worked and we started putting the movie together, the first thing that happened is my erstwhile head of distribution for the U.S. told me that this was the kind of movie that would only play in five or six southern states and we shouldn't be spending any money and $9 million was too much. We had a budget, blah, blah. Uh, I made a deal with Burt Reynolds to be in the movie. The only reason I got that deal made is that Hal had been Burt's stunt double yeah. for many years, many pictures, and Burt had had a string of so-called redneck pictures right. that all failed. Right. WW and the Dixie Dance Kings, Gator. Sure. Yeah, Gator. White That's Lightning. Right. Yes, you yes. Know, you That's want to right. shoot yourself. You look at that. I mean, it's just, come on. One so, redneck after another. You so you got him for a deal or not? I mean, yeah. was it a lot of money to get Burt no. Reynolds in those So Burt Reynolds at that time also had starred in, what the hell is that picture? I'm going to have to ask Pat. Pat, there's a big picture with Burt and Liza Minnelli that cost a lot of money. Oh, New think. York, New York. No, I think Fox did it. It was... Oh, yes, I know what you're talking and, about. And, and it was a colossal flop. I can't remember. In any event, Bert was still under the shadow of that big flop. Yeah. And so his agent, Sue Mengers, who was a powerhouse agent in Hollywood at yeah. ICM and a piece of work on her own. Yeah. Nevertheless, I went to Sue. I said, look, I think Bert wants to do this. He, she said, well, is Hal going to direct it? I said, sure, Hal's going to direct it on the theory that it's mostly stunts, and we've got a little bit of character work and not so much, and Hal can figure this out. And I'd had dinner with Hal, and I really liked him. He was smart. He was funny. Yeah. He was uneducated. Didn't matter. Yeah. And so I made a deal for Bert to do 13 days of work for $1 million. Wow. That's that was it. 1977. Yeah. That's big money. Right? That was big money for 13 days. Yeah, that established absolutely. a price for Bert of half a million a week. Basically, okay. Let, let me let me just let me just. I don't know how to say this. I've heard very few great things about Burt Reynolds mm. over, over the years. I, I, I've been in rooms with him three times, and uh, and he was always charming. Mm. He was extremely charming. And then I hear people say, "What a jerk!" Which is the truth about Burt? I'll say Burt Reynolds is one of the more complicated people I've ever worked with. Yeah, he was very very difficult. He was very touchy. Mm -hmm. He had a very tumultuous and unhappy childhood. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I got to know Bert very well. We did a lot of pictures together. We did two of the Smoking the Bandits and a number of other things. Uh, best of the warehouse in Texas. Sure. Yeah. Um, right. So the problem was Bert didn't believe in Bert. And as a result, that insecurity permeated everything that happened. It's the reason he had his initials carved on the mantelpiece in his house. It's the reason the gates to his house, because he was constantly terrified that paparazzi were showing up. But on the gates in front of his house were a giant BR logo. You know, in case you didn't know, I live here. <laughs> so, you know, complicated duck. And yes. And not the nicest man in the world. Okay, yeah, that's what I've always heard. Not the nicest man in the world. Okay, so so let's let's do this. So Hal Needham, how does there's I, there's a story, and I don't even know if it's true about Hal Needham. Yeah, there's a story about him, how he got into the business. Oh well, so Hal Needham is uh, this redneck kid from Missouri, fourth grade education. Yeah, he goes into the Marine Corps. In the Marine Corps, he becomes a paratrooper in a special Marine unit. And he's strong, and he's tough, and he's fearless. He's physically fearless. He'd grown up riding horses and working his farm, and because he had no particular education, he simply had to make his physique work for him, and he did. So he gets to Hollywood after he gets out of the Marines. He has a couple of thousand dollars in muster-out pay. He goes to Hollywood, and he's trying to figure out how to get a job in Hollywood. No idea. Goes to work for a tree-trimming service. Warner Brothers, at that time, and still today, has their executive offices off Olive Drive in Burbank. Those offices are surrounded by large, now 100-year-old, beautiful trees. The trees had to be trimmed. Hal ended up in a tree over the sidewalk on the main entrance to Warner Brothers trimming the damn tree. So he uh, was listening as two executives in very fancy suits, as he said to me, below were having an argument with each other. And one guy says to the other, you can't do this and nobody will do it. You can't do it. And besides, what's it going to cost? And the guy said, oh, I can get it done for 10. He said, somebody will do this for 10. You can go ahead and do it. I was listening very closely. He said, nobody in their right mind is going to jump off the wing of a moving airplane and land on a horse and ride away. It's not going to happen said, I'm sure I can find somebody, at which point Hal Needham literally drops out of a tree <laughs> and says, guys, what do you need done here? I've been a paratrooper, I'm a Marine, I can do all this stuff. I know all about flying, I'm not afraid of planes, and I grew up on horses, so I can get this done. Hal Needham goes to work, shows up on a set for a Western, and I've seen the footage, by the way, <laughs> and I wish I remembered the name of that Western, but Pat, our producer, will find that name and let me know. Yeah. So... Tom, the, the name of the Burt Reynolds picture was Lucky Lady. Lucky Lady. Lucky Lady, That's you are right. absolutely right. That was the biggest That's catastrophe of Burt's life. Yes. And it almost put him out of the business. And yeah. that's why I could get him for a million dollars because he needed a million dollars for 13 days. There it is. Yeah. So on the set, Hal Needham with a pilot flying a biplane, Hal climbs out, holding on to the top wing, standing on the bottom wing, the edge of a biplane. He tells that he's rehearsed the pilot. A friend of his brings horses up at a gallop. One of them has an empty saddle. And the pilot of the plane brings it down about, literally about 30, 35 feet off the ground and puts it into 
the edge of a stall. And on film, you can watch the plane slow down in the air and Hal Needham drops off the plane and lands in the saddle and rides away. Amazing. Yeah. So he goes to get his check. He wants 10 bucks. It's a lot of money. Remember, this is the late 50s, guys. 10 bucks is a big deal. 10 bucks. 10 ducks and big. So he goes to the payroll guy and he says, I need my money. And the thing, I just did this stunt on this airplane. I said, oh, you're the guy jumped off the damn plane. Okay, well, that's great. He said, but we don't have that kind of money here. You you don't have 10 bucks? I said, son, you get $10,000 for doing that. At that point, Hal Needham never left Hollywood. That's it. That's it. He was hooked. He was hooked. The, the, there's also, the, the, you got Jackie Gleason to do this. And I don't think people it, it, you have to understand at that point in time, getting Jackie Gleason to do pretty much mm. anything was almost impossible. Yeah. Well, Jackie was very happy in Florida. Yeah. And he was quasi-retired. Yeah. And he would come out and do something if it appealed to him and only if. And as you know, Jackie was... I wouldn't say that alcohol was... He liked the, his drink. wasn't the most important thing in his life, but it was a daily occurrence. Of course. And so, huh, Jackie's interested in it, but not willing to commit. I get on the phone with Jackie from Universal and have a couple of great conversations, but I'm getting nowhere. Yeah. Can't get this guy to say yes. His agent has given up, by the way. They're saying, you talk him into it and call me, you know. So, Jackie says... If you can beat me playing pool, I'll do the movie. So I'm the worst pool player on the planet. And he's one of the best. He is a I mean, brilliant he, one, pool You know, he played in the Minnesota Fats and the, and the, and the, the Hustler, and he was yeah. you know, he, you know, very, very good pool player. So you have to go out and beat him in pool. For so I slept to, to Florida, yeah. go to the subdivision, go to his beautiful house, yeah. go to the basement, which is a pool room, which might as well be a professional billiards parlor in london i right. mean it's just elegant and beautiful and i lose six games of pool in a row to jackie gleason by a light year yeah and we're playing eight ball this isn't sophisticated pool this yes. is just straight old yeah. eight ball right and the guy is just cleaning my clock i can't even he's if he hits the ball then he runs the table and then i might get a chance to play next time so he does that six times in a row, and he says, well, you're just never going to beat me. I said, that's right. He said, but you came all the way down here. I'll do the movie. Really? So, how, much, how much money, do you, if you don't mind me asking, yeah. for those, thir did he have 13 days work? No, he had a little more than that, actually. And uh, he made about $600,000. Also a lot of money. Yeah, oh, in that time, yeah. And, and it's funny, because the movie, if I remember correctly, Bert and Jackie aren't, they're not really together. Well, we had a little, let's say you've heard of the phrase creative differences. Yes. So uh, Bert's idea of creative differences were anything that impinged on Bert's singular domination of the screen. <laughs> so I, Bert so, was the kind of actor that says to you, and I've had a few of them in yeah. my life, kind of actor that says, the problem is I'm not getting enough close-ups. Uh, That's yes. the problem. I don't yeah. have, you know, you need to be tighter on my face so the audience can see what I'm right. doing here, right, you right. know. And so <laughs> the script that we set out to shoot had 12 major scenes between Jackie and Bert. And I must say they were good scenes. Yeah. Morton Engelberg had done good work. The writers had done good work. Chuck Shire and uh, terrific people had worked on the script. 
Uh, Bert went through the script and came back and said, I'm not doing the movie anymore. I'm out. I said, why? Well, there are all these scenes with Jackie Gleason. I'm not doing scenes with Jackie Gleason. And why not? Uh, I couldn't answer that question at that moment, but I was able to answer it with great clarity once we were shooting. We kept two scenes which Bert and Jackie are together in the movie. One scene was car to car. They're in separate cars, right. both convertibles, talking to each other across a 20-foot expanse. And so that wasn't too much. And then one scene in a, um, uh, as they charmingly said uh, in the uh, movie, a, uh, what did they call those restaurants? Uh, it was a truck driver slang for really bad restaurants, something like, you know, uh, choke and puke, yeah, something, something, to, like that, that. Yeah, something right. to that effect. Yeah. In any event, that scene is in the movie. When we got to that scene, Bill, everything that Bert worried about with Jackie Gleason became clear to me. Yeah. That scene, we shot, uh, we shot the whole movie around Atlanta, and uh, that scene took place in a little diner, a little roadside diner with a big parking lot, and uh, the trailers, Bert's trailer and Jackie's trailer, next to each other across maybe... 100, 150 feet of parking lot. And so we're ready to shoot the shot, and Bert comes out first. And there are about 3,000 people lined up behind a tape. People have heard we're shooting a movie. Bert Reynolds is a star. Jackie Gleason's famous. They want to see. So we're keeping people back. But Bert comes out, and he walks this 150 feet. And in the middle, he stops, and he looks at this crowd, and he takes his cowboy hat and he bends down and bows mm-hmm. and doffs his hat and the crowd goes crazy. They oh go my nuts. God, it's yeah, Bert Reynolds, yeah. blah, 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 yeah. and all of that. Three minutes go by. Jackie Gleason's door open. Jackie looks at the crowd. He looks at the diner. He steps out. And then he starts to do the honeymooner shuffle yes. all the way across the parking lot. Well, the, the, this this that, little that thing. thing, yeah. Yes, the, and yeah. the crowd goes completely crazy. So whatever Bert's adulation was on the sonic register, Jackie Gleason has now taken over Bert's position as the big so dog. So Bert, Bert knew he couldn't register on the same icon meter probably as Jackie Gleason. Which, well, who could? Well, and you who know? could? And, yeah. and Jackie Gleason on top of that was an unbelievably terrific actor. Yes. He had real chops, you know. You shot the whole thing in Atlanta. Yes. And... And so you you shoot this thing, and, 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 and forgive me if I'm getting ahead of things, but you get no, it back right. and you piece it all together. Yes. You piece this thing together, and it and it's great, right? Or is it not great? Well, huh. let's put it this way. Um, it has all the makings of a good movie, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have the scenes. There are a lot of connective tissue. There are a lot of issues around truck events and stunts and things that make the movie work. Yes. So there's an editor named Verna Fields, Uh who when I was running Universal, I made the head of post-production for the studio because she was widely known in the industry as the mother cutter. She was really a genius film editor, and she understood everything about filmmaking. Yeah, it's a famous name in in that biz. She had rescued American Graffiti by taking the movie over and recutting it and adding the Susan... What's her name? No. Who was the blonde in the... Suzanne Summers. Suzanne Summers, right. Blonde in the convertible stuff. All that was shot later. Right. That was all Verna, second unit. Wow. You know, so after rescuing that film, then um, later after Smoking the Bandit, she was famous for rescuing Jaws. She took the shark and had it put in her swimming pool in her backyard. 
and she spent three months shooting shark close-ups and really? cut them into jaws. Really? That was, that made the difference between jaws that was scary and jaws that just fucking scare you to death. Right. And so. She uh, sees this, she sees your rough cut of this movie, I guess. Yeah, and she's despondent, as she should be. <laughs> and so was I. And oh. because we knew that it was there, the pieces were there, but the connective tissue didn't exist. So right. Verna said, give me a second unit. I'm going to go up to Ojai, which is north of Los Angeles, and the mountains surrounded between Ojai and the coast, the mountains are filled with forests. So I'm going to go up there on those little roads, and I'll shoot this, and I'll make all the connective tissue work. And she did. And that's, that's why, if you look at Smokey and the Bandit, when trucks are speeding around corners, if you look closely, you'll see an occasional palm tree. That's yes. because we were no longer in Atlanta. <laughs> we were now in Ojai, California, shooting truck drive-bys and a lot of other pieces, variations. There's also, this is, movie's famous for a lot of reasons, um, but one of them is that Bert, either he meets Sally Field on this, is he, does he know Sally Field before this movie? Does he want Sally Field to be in the movie? So we had a, another couple of issues. Uh, no movie... Movie business is a cruel mistress, <laughs> I'll just say. So, so Bert wanted Rita Moreno. He was desperate to have Rita Moreno play the female lead. That's a weird choice. Why, why Rita Moreno? Well, let's just say that Bert was in his maximum, you know, Hollywood's favorite stud guy phase. And I suspect there was an agenda with Rita Moreno, but I don't know. Well, so uh, he he wanted to meet Rita Moreno, or he in, already in, knew in a, Rita Moreno. I think he wanted to meet her in the biblical sense. I got you. Okay, that makes sense. So he thinks that's a good. Th- that does happen in Hollywood, doesn't yeah, uh, it? with some frequency. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So, so 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 you who we, talks him off, Rita Moreno? Mort, Mort and I were determined to have Sally Field in the movie. Yeah. We'd seen her in a lot of things. She'd been terrific. She's a terrific actress, and we knew that we needed with Bert, who is a, a, can be a decent actor, but never a great actor, we needed to surround him with people that were better than he was. Yeah. So if you have Jackie Gleason and you have Sally Field, the guy is now playing in a completely different ballgame. Yeah, this isn't sure. Gator or White Lightning or WW and the Dixie Dance Kings, whatever yeah. the hell that is. Yeah. And so finally he caved in. There was a lot of, like, I'm not doing this, and a lot of petulance, and uh, petulance was a big deal in Bert's world. And, you know, listen, let's put it this way. Any guy who has to have his cowboy boots custom-made with three-and-a-half-inch lifts built into them <laughs> is a guy who has some kind of problem you're going to run into in the making of a movie. Yeah, that's right. That's going to that's gonna rear its ugly head yeah, somewhere it's, along it's the some, way. It's manifest in some way. Um, so, it's funny because you end up making, you end up finding him a new girlfriend. Basically. Oh yeah, well that's right, and and of course, and they have a kid together who's yeah. a terrific kid, yeah. and yeah. you know, it's funny. all that. And uh, then Sally leaves him because you know because it's Bert. He, it's Bert. You know, this is I'm gonna. Uh, there's one thing I know, and it, we haven't covered this, and I don't know if you want to get into it, but I I'm a Jerry Reed fan. Yes, I love Jerry Reed, and I love love his music, and I I just thought he seemed like one of these great characters, and he's in this movie, and yes. his music's in this movie. And he has a dog in this movie. Yes, he does. And this dog, I want to know. I want to hear the story about how they picked the dog for Smokey and the Bandit. Okay, so Jerry Reed, who's by the way a lovely man and a good actor, 
and wrote some great music for the movie. I mean, yeah. Eastbound and Down, you yeah. know, I still hear that on yeah. country when radio. You're hot, you're, when you're hot, you're hot. And yeah, when you're all, not, you're not. That's all that stuff. All that stuff, yeah. And Jerry's got a great sense of humor. Yeah. So uh, we decided um, in the script we needed a dog yeah. to be Jerry Reed's companion. Right. And the dog had to do some things, so it's Hollywood. And so I went out and got two dog wranglers. Yeah, you stunt dogs, real dogs that real ha- dogs. know how to do things. Yeah. Totally trained, completely yeah. reliable, know how to hit the mark, know how sure. to look at the camera, know how to not bark, Yeah. you know, all the stuff. Yeah. It's a whole business in Hollywood, right? It is, indeed. Yeah. So now we're getting ready to make the movie in Atlanta, and somehow... Uh, and this is what happens when you run a studio. You can't manage everything. So somebody in publicity got away from me and decided we would have a dog judging contest. Okay. So we announce in the paper, in the Atlanta Constitution, that we're having a dog judging contest on the plaza in front of CNN. Big old plaza, put up a stage. The day of the dog judging contest, 2,500, 2,800 people show up with dogs to be judged. Oh, no. Yeah, oh, no is right, because how the hell? And Bert takes uh, one uh, look at this. Untrained goes, dogs. Yeah, untrained dogs. My yeah. favorite, oh, it's a wonderful dog, and watch it. I can make him roll over. It's whatever the hell. It's all impossible. Right. And I have the ringers, and so I put the ringers in with the other dogs, and I show Bert how to identify the ringers, and I say, when we get down to it, you have to choose one of these two dogs. Because these are the trained dogs. Yeah. Everything else is going to be a nightmare, and we'll never, the dog will be off yeah. in the bushes chasing a rabbit, and we're, you know. So, Bert retires to his hotel. <laughs> There's a football coach, I think his name was Pepper Rogers, if I remember. Yeah. And he's famous at the university in Georgia, and so he's there. And I make him slog through 2,800 dogs and their well meaning dog parents. It's a long day. Yeah, I'll bet. It's a really long day, but we get through it, and mm-hmm. we get down to it, and we get down to 10 dogs, two okay. of whom are ringers. Yeah, and, you, and one of those has to be picked. One of them has to be picked. Right. So we, once we have 10 dogs lined up, somebody fetches Bert from the hotel. We bring him over. We say, here are your 10 dogs. Those are the two, number three and number seven. Yeah. Choose one of those two. Otherwise, so you get to choose. You're the guy. Go out and do this. Bert walks out, looks at the crowd, which is maybe still about 2,500, 3,000 people. And he says, I'm going to let the audience choose the dog. I'm going to hold my hand up over each dog, and you guys applaud. Just basically to F with you. Basically oh, yeah. just to, just to say, just say to, you don't make the rules here. You don't make the rules here. I'm Bert Riddles, and you're not. <laughs> and if I want the audience to choose a damn dog, he's going to be in the movie. And they did. They chose dog number five. He's not trained. He's overweight. He's a funny, aging basset hound. He's kind of a ridiculous dog. We had huge worries that he was going to croak during the movie. You know, you can't have the dog croak. So now Jerry Reed meets the dog. The dog gets in the in the damn truck with Jerry Reed. Jerry Reed immediately jumps out and goes, uh, you know, I think the dog has a digestive problem. I don't want to be in the truck with the dog. And so it's like, okay, and... I so, can't be with this dog, I no, guess. No. So the, the whole dog turns into a whole subtext oh in the movie goodness. constantly. Anyway, we made it through the movie, and the dog made it through the movie, and, and everybody, and, and even Jerry Reed survived. So there we go. When, when you get this, uh, the, the new shots are cut in, and you piece together something that looks like the movie, or yeah. you, you know, yeah. uh, do you 
do you do research? Does, does, well, I mean, does, a lot what, of what do people happen. think? What happened at that yeah. stage? A lot of things happen. Once you have a movie that you can, quote, preview, unquote, mm-hmm. you do those. You start doing previews in various cities, see what mm-hmm. people think of the movie, and all of that research, and that helps you inform the nature of your advertising campaign. But a lot of other things happen. Remember that Mort Engelberg worked for Ray Stark. Ray Stark was the Darth Vader of his moment in Hollywood as yeah. a producer. Right. Tough guy. Tough, yeah. Unhappy I've, I've guy. I've always heard that, yes. Very wealthy, very tough, very unhappy man. Yeah. And so he looked at the movie with Maggie Booth, his resident editor in his company. Maggie Booth had been L.B. Mayer's prime cutter at MGM, and she must have been 408 years old at the mm-hmm. time she saw this movie. <laughs> yeah. She hated it. She said it was unreleasable. Yeah. So Ray said, it's unreleasable. So Mort said, what do I do? And I said, Mort, you go back to Ray Stark right now and say to him that you're really sorry you have delivered such a dog of a movie, but you would really appreciate it if you could make some kind of deal that gave you a bigger piece of the movie. If Ray wants nothing to do with it, let him give you half, your, half of his points. Oh. So Mort did that which is why after Smokey and the Bandit, Mort could stay in the movie business or build a rocket ship and go to Mars if he wanted right. to. Right, yes. So he chose Mars, by the yeah. way. <laughs> so, and I'll tell you more about that at a later moment. Yeah, yeah. In any event, now we have the preview trip for the movie, and I'm battling my own distribution company, which has no faith in this movie. They think it's a redneck drive-in movie mm-hmm. when the age of drive-ins is long gone. And it's sort of interesting, too, and I'm, I'm, I'm all over the place here, but bear yeah, with me. Please. The president of the time is Jimmy Carter, right? So right. Jimmy Carter is the president at that moment. But when you're making the movie... He was governor of Georgia and incredibly helpful to us. Yes, that's right. So he's he's one of the guys that sort of opened doors for you in Georgia. He didn't open doors. He loaned us a highway patrol helicopter for all the aerial shots. Right. He sent us his head of security to be running a phalanx of highway patrolmen, a man named Ronnie Gay, who was a senior sergeant in the highway patrol in Georgia. And when we needed to shut down interstate freeways for days at a time for shooting for huge, complicated stunts, we just shut them down. And every time the federal authorities would show up and say, you can't shut down an interstate, Ronnie Gay would say, how would you like to chill your heels in a Georgia jail for a month? And they would leave. I don't blame him. It's it's so great that suddenly he's the president of the United States, the guy who's sort of helped you green light this movie in many oh, yeah. ways no. um, so so now you're you you've done the research people uh, 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 so the distribution uh, guys yes right okay just, go ahead. Uh, so let me just say henry hr high martin my nemesis at the studio mm. didn't like me thought i was a communist i don't know i guess i don't know you're not a communist no i to my knowledge i've never okay. been a communist okay. i don't at least i wouldn't right. remember okay that's good no i'll take you at your word anyway so uh, Henry Martin said, we're only going to release this in six states. All Alabama, all named Alabama. So <laughs> Six states all named Alabama. So we can't do that. You know, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and so I kick up a ruckus, and I finally go to the chairman of the company, Lou Wasserman, who I had a good relationship with, and I said, I've got to, what do I do here? He's going to throw this movie away. And he said, you really think it'll play outside the South? And I said, I know it will. This movie will play. People will like this movie. So he said, go tell Mr. Martin 
to give you one good booking in New York. Hi, Martin, no fool he said, okay, this kid has trumped me and I have to release it in New York, so I'm going to screw him over completely. So he booked the picture in Radio City Music Hall. Oh. You may have been in that building. Yes. There are a few seats in that building. Yes. It's a little bigger than your average movie theater. Yeah, a wrong venue for that too, really. Wrong venue, Smoke in a Bandit, opens in Radio City yeah. Music Hall, and our only test case outside the South. Wow. So here's the good news. We got on the radio like a mad. I bribed every disc jockey within shouting distance of New York. Yeah. We got on the radio like mad. We had people who never played Jerry Reed or even thought about country music playing eastbound and down. Right. We gave away toy trucks with the Bandit logo and stuff on them at FAO Schwartz. We had... We did everything I could think of in New York to get people interested enough to show up. And they did show up. And Smokey and the Bandit opened like gangbusters around the country. Six southern states, all called Alabama, and <laughs> New York, where it was a hit in the Radio City Music Hall. And, you know, that damn place is so big. Yeah. I mean, you could hunt moose in there yeah, and never exactly. be in danger of finding one. Right. So it's just... Um, so, so the so the picture opens. I mean, wh at what point do you realize this is this is a thing? This is a phenomenon. Uh, uh, well, I assume that. Well, let me go back further. The reviews, I assume, are not great. The reviews are not just not great. I'm now. I, by the time I get to smoking the bandit, I've made a lot of movies for Universal. Yeah. And I've been through all kinds of drill, and I've had really bad reviews and really good reviews, and right. all everything in between. On Smokey and the Bandit, we got one, count them, one good review in the entire United States of America. Yeah. One good review. Who was Tom, that? Tom Shales uh, at I the like Washington Post. Yeah, yeah like great Tom. guy. Great guy, yeah. Smart guy. A guy yeah. you'd never anticipate appreciating Smokey and the Bandit yeah. for what it was. Simple, funny entertainment. Right. With a kind of, you know, Buster Keaton-like chase element. Sure. Blended into a contemporary movie yeah. and a lot of goofy redneck humor. Yeah. And Tom Shales said, this movie is the heart of America. You've <laughs> got to go see it. It made me laugh harder than I've seen anything I've seen all year. Yeah. And suddenly I had something I could put in the newspaper ads. As you well know, if you're in the movie business and you can't find a single good review, you have nothing to put in sure. those pages you're taking right. in papers. Right. But Tom Shales did it. And... And so, honestly, in the second week of its release, we went from six states plus one theater in New York to about 2,000, 2,200 theaters around the country, and then from there to about 3,500 theaters around the country. So for the investment of nine million, am I correct again? Nine, nine million, million dollars, dollars. Yes. This movie makes... Well, in box office, in its initial release, we did $126 million that the studio got to keep. Right. We were the second picture that year, the first picture being Star Wars. Right. So in addition, we're also going out in VHS, where we did another $120 million. So now we're at 240 And in that first three to five months of release, we passed $300 million. Um, you changed... Hollywood, really. There's a legacy to this. I mean, things changed very quickly about this. All of a sudden, everybody was in the redneck movie business, right? right? I, well, let, let's put it this way. 
cannonball run didn't come out of nowhere. Yeah, exactly. So all these, everybody wants to, let's do one of those. That's right. We got to do one of those. And Bert is suddenly the biggest star in on the planet. Bert Reynolds from 78 to, I think 70, 77 to 83. Is that about six years is the number one box office star in the world. It's amazing. Coming out of that picture. What do you think is the legacy of this? First of all, let me, actually, before I get to that, what did that do for you? Well, you know. Personally, you're there at yeah. Universal uh, President, and, and you yeah. had to push this thing through, and there were a lot of people that didn't want it, and there are a lot of people that are jealous of it, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, um, what did it do for you personally? Well, for me, it's a, listen, uh, running a movie studio is a very um, tenuous Position. It's not the kind of job that you get and go, oh, great, I'll be doing this in 10 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah the average, is what, life, average life is what, three two, years. Three years, yeah. I managed to survive as president there for nine years. Wow. Um, things like smoking and the bandit count. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, Mr. Wasserman, the chairman of the company, who is the smartest guy I've ever met and an amazing force, an amazing power in Hollywood in his own right, Mr. Wasserman would say very clearly, he said many times to me, he said, I'm not Irving Thalberg. I'm never going to second guess you. You make the damn movies. Just make sure we make money. So as long as there was cash coming over the transom, I was fine. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it's important in the sense of, um, in, the, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, as somebody who grew up in Oklahoma, who kind of got all this stuff, and I liked the movie, and I thought it was fun, and I thought that you were addressing uh, us as real people yeah. versus. And by the way, you know the, the movie's not full of bad guys. Like it's not, you know, like a lot of these, a lot of these movies, you know, Southern Comfort and things like that. They were all the, the South was a scary place. And Deliverance. Be, yeah, it's like hang him. You know, it's yeah, all it's a lot of that That's stuff. Right. right. Um, this is not that. Yeah. It's it's funny characters. You it, it, even the law. Everybody's got you know. It's kind of somebody you'd want to hang out with, which I thought was well. It's great the, and positive in many ways. You know. You know, honestly, it's a comedy. Yeah, I mean, it's a comedy, and so we need villains, but they're villains in the sense that maybe um, you know uh, the producers would have a villain in it. Yeah, but the villain wouldn't be. Darth Vader wouldn't be the horrible draconian person. Would be somebody goofy and ill somebody yes. greedy, somebody out of control. Sure. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you want to have a good experience in a movie like that. You know, comedies are a very specific brew. And at Universal, we I tried very hard to move the company in the direction of comedies, and we made a lot of them. And way before Comedy Central was a uh, cable service. Um, one day, and not after that particular picture, but after Animal House, I asked the operators at Universal to answer the phone all day saying Comedy Central because I wanted everybody who called in in Hollywood to get it that we owned comedy. Yeah. And they didn't. Huh. That's great. I also think that this this is a, a movie for people who like cars. Just, let's just say it. And, and also for people who like seeing cars wreck basically so are, are you do you have any sense of the toll i mean what, what first of all first of all there's a very famous car from it tell me about that car so the situation with finding a car for the bandit to drive was really simple 
I went to Ford Motor Company, where we as a company had a good relationship. Yeah. And they had a new version of a Mustang coming out. And I said, listen, we need your new hot Mustang convertible, and Burt Reynolds is going to drive it and all this stuff. And they looked at the script and said, absolutely not. Yeah. We wouldn't give you a car. We don't want to be associated with no, that. No, no, no. This no, is reckless no. and out of control and yeah. awful, and we don't want it. We don't and want the Mustang to be associated with lawlessness. Right. Uh, well, and the Mustang's, quote, a sophisticated car. Ah, I didn't know that. So, I didn't know right. the Mustang was a sophisticated Well, car. and neither, neither did any of my redneck brethren in high school, <laughs> all of whom bought Mustangs. Exactly. And so I so went to... So Ford a, says no. What do you Ford do? says no. I went to a couple of other divisions of General Motors to see what they would say. They all said no. Finally, a guy at J. Walter Thompson in their Detroit office said, listen, Pontiac's having a terrible time. Right. And here's the name of the guy at Pontiac. And they, they've got a new car they've just put out. For 1976 model, that car, they can't give it away. It's called the Trans Am. Oh, so wow. I called them up and I said, listen, I'm, gonna, I'm making this movie. It's Burt Reynolds and thing and stuff. And I promised them great glory. And they said, okay, how many do you need? And I said, well, I, I think I need four, but I might need more. And I said, okay, we're going to send you four right now. And we have to make some changes. I said, what are the changes? I said, well, your movie doesn't come out for a year. Correct. He said, so we have a new design for the front end for 1977. We're going to put the new front ends on our 76 cars and send them to you. So when the movie comes out, it's the car that's in the showroom. Oh. So they did that. Wow. And then they said, what other cars do you have? And I said, well, I need like 20 cop cars. And I said, great, we're sending you 20 Pontiac sedans that are cop cars. And I said, well, I need a station. And Pontiac said, Pontiac, suddenly the universal lot was awash in Pontiacs. <laughs> so every, and, pretty much every, every car in that movie is a Pontiac. Yeah, pretty much. And, pretty much. And, and so you put, you singularly put the Trans Am. Well, here's what happened. Hal Needham's a genius stuntman. Yeah. And he wrote some great stunts and some insane stunts in this movie. Cars yeah. fly off of bridges and land on trailer trucks and go with yeah. things, you know. It's, this is long before it's that, that, that CGI stuff that oh, everybody's no, doing. No, no. This, this is, is all, all real stuff. This is all analog, real stuff. We yeah. had to, so the biggest stunt we did was a stunt in which Bert in the Trans Am comes up to a bridge and the bridge is out. And he has to jump over a river. And there's a little bit of the bridge on the other side of the river. Yeah. And it's a very wide I remember the scene. Expanse. Yeah. So we do what we always do for these kinds of things. We get ready to elevate the car by firing some cannons that we build into the bottom of the frame of the car that push it through the air. Mm -hmm. And we calculate the speed the car has to be going based on the weight of the car and the distance it has to cover. So... The guys who do the calculation for us do the same calculation for all the studios. There's some math guys mm -hmm. at Caltech. Yeah. Somehow they got a little confused. They sent us information. We use that information. Right. If you look at that scene, the car comes roaring off the ramp to go over the bridge, and the river disappears under the car, and it kind of continues to climb. And I realized when I looked at the dailies, I wasn't there, but I looked at the dailies, I realized we no longer had a car. We now have an aircraft. <laughs> This thing is flying through the air. It's got two stunt people in it playing Bert and Sally. Right. And it's by the time it gets to the other side of the river, it's 80 feet off the ground. Oh, man. And it doesn't land for another 200 feet down the road. Oh. And when it lands, it bends the frame, and the car is useless. Right. Anyway, Anybody hurt? Nobody hurt. 
which is a miracle. Yeah. Nobody hurt. So you do, so the Trans Am you you basically uh, smoking the bandit basically makes uh, the Trans Am in the next twelve months after we released the picture right the Trans Am had a sixty seven percent increase in sales That's domestically. Fantastic. That's and, just great. And they started sending Trans Ams to Bert every time he sneezed. He got a new Trans Am. <laughs> <laughs> this has been great. This is just one of one of the many movies. But I, I just wanted to say that um, when you and I would get together and we'd over a coffee and a, a, you know, I'd have Americano and you'd have your, uh, your uh, green iced tea. Absolutely. Very Hollywood. Yeah. Um, Thank you for that. Uh, this is one of the first things you told me was about the making of Smoking <laughs> the Bandit. And, yeah. and I, I always thought that uh, there must be a lot of these. And it appears that there are, uh, that you were involved in so many different things that I can't wait to, to, get, to get to them all. We've gotten a few of them already, but there's so much beyond there's actually more of this one and the producer's still around right uh, mort engelberg is a good friend of mine mort by the way so i let you know because this should be in the show even i won't take more than two minutes okay but go ahead mort took the money he made from smoky one two and three right and a few other pictures he made some other good pictures right and he called me and he said i'm no longer in the movie business yeah. i said great he said i'm in little rock arkansas i said well i feel bad for you he said no <laughs> No, I'm in Little Rock, Arkansas. Those are my people, by the way, yeah, are I, the people from Arkansas, I, so you I watch it. That. I got that. But okay, in, North go ahead. in North Carolina, we think of them simply as Razorbacks. Nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, he's in Little Rock, Arkansas, because he's met some guy who's a young governor who's decided he wants to be president, named Bill Clinton. So Mort becomes Bill Clinton's right-hand guy, and helps him figure out how to mount a presidential campaign, which Mort effectively manages. And you may remember that in Bill Clinton's first run at the presidency, he did a bus tour through the American Midwest, a very lengthy bus tour, mm -hmm. and everywhere they stopped, the press, the newspapers and TV stations were amazed because everywhere they stopped, they stopped in, you know, uh, Hardwood, USA, wherever that was, mm -hmm. there were always two or 3,000 people waiting to greet the candidate. Right. And no other candidate had that kind of traction. That's right. because Mort Engelberg called every movie publicist in America and made the chart of the route of the bus and paid them all to make sure they turned out a crowd for this presidential candidate that would attract TV coverage. And everywhere they stopped, Clinton thought he was the most popular guy yeah. in the world. Yeah. And all Mort was doing was what any good movie publicist would do. Make sure you're covered. Yeah, you gotta make sure you got a full house. That's right. That's fantastic. Well, that's uh, that's at least part of the story of Smoking the Bandit. I know we're going to do some more uh, on it later, and as well as a million other things. Uh, this is uh, uh, again, that's all for today. Uh, remember, this uh, there may not be any shortcuts in life, but there are many, many detours. This is Bill Getty with Tom Mount advising you to take fountain.